0: Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the next episode of Dirty Drinks. How are you today, Rick?
1: I'm doing well, Sarah. Yourself?
0: Not too bad. I'm enjoying the spring weather. I think maybe spring is here for good.
1: Kind of feels that way, doesn't it? Uh, I I still worry that we have that March snowstorm coming that's going to be like that heavy snow that's uh, really going to make me work to move it.
0: You keep saying that four-letter word. I don't appreciate it.
1: It's a bad four-letter word in March, right?
0: (laughs) It is. (laughs) Anyway, today we have another wonderful guest with us.
1: We do. I'm super excited to have Terry Michaels join us today. Uh, Terry, uh, welcome.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm just uh, really thrilled to be part of the program and just uh, feel like it's a privilege to be with you today.
1: Yeah, Terry is. Um, Uh, runs the infection prevention program here at Nebraska Medicine and uh, has uh, had uh, quite the uh, history in infection prevention. So we're super excited to talk to her today.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Terry, do you want to tell everyone kind of what your role is now and what you do? Sure.
2: Sure. I um, actually started in infection prevention in 1995, if you can believe that. So I've been an IP or infection preventionist for a very long time. Um, I started just uh, doing the normal uh, infection prevention work, uh, eventually moved into the leadership role, and then uh, came here to Nebraska Medicine in about 2016. And um, I've been here since that time just managing uh, the infection control and epidemiology department and um, just love it. It's been a great, great opportunity here for me. Um, so much to do and see and get involved with. So but I'm cool. a nurse. Yeah. a Nurse by background. I don't know if that matters, but uh, I got my master's in nursing and administration uh, adult health and illness and funny story. I, started my career in nursing. At the time I was very little, I always wanted to be a nurse. But then in high school, I had the influence of a neighbor who was a med tech. So kind of intrigued me, the whole microorganism. And uh, when I went to college at UNL, took micro and loved micro and thought, oh, what do I do? Sort of at that, you know, which way do I go? I went nursing, but um, I think it's interesting how my career has come full circle. I'm back to the bugs anyway, within nursing. So it's been, it's been great. Uh, Now I'm on the uh, more investigative side, right. Trying to mitigate and stop their transmission. So that's really, uh, I, I guess my passion is really patient safety as it relates to infection prevention. So, and, and just really, um, trying to develop and uh, contribute to a program, I guess, that um, is really involved in patient safety related to infection control. So that's my background.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I remember taking microbiology. I thought it was super interesting, but something that was something I... Couldn't even come close to understanding at the time that I took it when I was in college. It was like so many different little organisms and trying to remember their names and, you know, their different organelles and all this other stuff. And I was like, wow, this is complicated as hell, but it's just interesting. Um, And so I, I think that's that's awesome. Well, and here um, we are. Yeah, here we are, right? I know we talk the talk every day. I, yes. you know, maybe I, maybe I understand it a little better now. I'm not sure, but I, I hope so. Um, um, so you went into nursing. Um, what made you be able to cycle back? Was there a mentor or some way that you got into infection prevention while you were in nursing? How did you end up finding your passion here?
2: Um, you know, my background goes back to um, the ICU. So I worked in the ICU as a bedside nurse for eight years, nine years. Loved it. Loved the um, action, the, um, the intensity, the, the challenge, the critical thinking, always trying to stay ahead of things. And, you know, I look back now and I think about the HAIs that we had I'm going to date myself, but it's before 1995. I'll put it that way. And uh, <laughs> um, dang, I don't think I was very good at hand hygiene. You know, I just think about the, the catheter infections we had or the pneumonias we had. And I just, um, how do you stop that? And, and I remember isolations. I was petrified of, of isolations, MDROs, right? Um, It seems like people are so lax about it these days. But boy, back in my day, I was really, I mean, that's when we were double bagging linen coming out of rooms, you know, (laughs) and that was before uh, standard precautions. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the whole uh, PPE really bloodborne pathogen, you know, transmission risk. And that, that happened in the eighties, right? The mid eighties. And Mm -hmm. really when HIV came about and, you know, that put the fear in everyone at that time, it's just this unknown. And that was intriguing too, just, you know, that where did this come from just out of the blue? You know, that's how it was perceived early. Obviously it's, we know so much more now, but those were the, um, the early things, I guess, that intrigued me. I also, um, managed, so I managed a cardiopulmonary unit and an intermediate care unit and love the leadership aspect. Um, but the 24 seven grind and, um, just is very wearing. Right. And so just looking for something a little different, something that, um, was compatible with family life, you know, the, uh, bedside nursing, it's, it's tough, you know? And so I guess those things just pulled me into infection control. I also worked with a nurse in my ICU days who ended up moving to a leadership role in infection control. And she was the one that hired me in the role. So she knew my background, knew my work ethic, um, and gave me the opportunity to learn a new body of knowledge. It's really was starting over. It felt like starting over in terms of there's so much out there to to learn and know and really develop, I guess, as a professional in this area.
0: That's great. Such a great story for you to come into being an IP. Um, So in your role now as a leader, you do a lot of recruitment and education for your team. Mm -hmm. Um, When you are uh, looking for someone—it takes a special person to be an IP, doesn't it? Yes. Um, what are What are some of the things you look for in your team um, when you bring them on? Sure. Well,
2: looking for people that are good candidates, I guess, for this job because it's uh there's so few of us out there that it's hard to find someone seasoned. So really. Um, we're change agents. When I think about what we do, we're change agents for the organization. We uh, we're rounding either at the bedside. We're looking at the environment of care and we're looking for opportunities to make things better and safer. And uh, in order to be, to get that done, I mean, you have to have um, an interest, a desire for um, improvement process improvement and um, you have to have uh, a little bit of attention to detail. We do a lot of, you know, the microbes involved. And I guess um, also like infection surveillance. So when we talk to new candidates, it's, you know, that's kind of the bread and butter of what we do. We do are looking for healthcare associated infections. So we're in the record and reviewing and reviewing labs and such, but that's really just a piece of it. I like to take that piece and then you're looking for patterns, right? So are we seeing a common bug in a certain area or patterns of things? So, um, and then that's where I think we can put on our CSI hat and how do we, what are the causes? What's contributing to this? Are there common variables or factors? and um, really trying to identify what influences those common things and what can we do to maybe, I want to say, change a practice or modify an existing procedure. Maybe someone's not following procedure, and so we're having contamination risk. So um, people that have a a desire for that, um, interest, intrigue, you have to have uh, relationships with people, easy relationships, because a lot of what we do is working with our uh, stakeholders and colleagues in our clinical care. So you have to have the ability to partner with people to get things done. Um, If we went in with a, a stick and said, thou shalt, you know, it's probably wouldn't get done, right? So we really have to, how do we partner with people to get things done? So it's, Folks with those kind of characteristics, interest um, like improving things and patient safety is number one. Really has a strong desire to keep patients safe.
0: I can just imagine a wall in your office that's got like red strings connecting everything together like they do in the detective movies (laughs) yes
2: yes you can well i don't have the red strings but i'm telling you it it, that's the fun part of what we do actually is when you see different um
1: things you do a little outbreak investigations it's not necessarily fun because you don't want people to get things and get sick but uh but it certainly is uh uh, good to kind of do the investigating. It's, it's exciting and to have a breakthrough, and then maybe find something that you're like, hey, this is why. Yeah. And we can now we can hopefully mitigate this and prevent it from happening in the future, right?
2: Yeah, I have an example of that. I, this goes back a few years um, outside of Nebraska Medicine, but we um, had a board meeting at our hospital and the following day we had several providers calling saying they had um, uncontrolled um, stooling shall we say (laughs) Um, and so long story short when you know more than one we had quite a quite a few of these um, individuals who had attended the common thread was they were all attended this meeting like the day prior And so trying to get a specimen to, you always have to confirm your diagnosis before you have a hunch, you know, we had a hunch, but, uh, long story short, involved our public health partners working with the caterer and lo and behold, there had been someone at this, uh, restaurant who catered the mill who had these same symptoms. So, (laughs) and with specimens, we could put it together and, uh, mitigate you know but at that point it was passed but saving the food they tested the food so those are the interesting things that we get involved in that happened to be non-patient oriented but it um, it was interesting you know trying to figure out how do you get to the source so you can say yep this is it and so good exercise there with our public health folks and I say a little bit of fun you know
1: yeah
2: <laughs> how do you be well- how great do you learning this out? yeah
1: yeah great learning especially for a, a new ip or somebody new in the world to see how you kind of do that uh, you know that old shoe leather epidemiology that you used to have to do now we've got uh, you know fancier techniques than having to you know hunt things down where we can uh, grow things and type them and do all kinds of stuff right yes
2: absolutely yes and we do a little bit of that too right
1: yeah one thing that you mentioned that it sounds like you're really passionate on is the part where patient safety, um, you know, I think in some cases, you know, people on the floor may see infection prevention walking around. They're like, oh, they're going to check and make sure I'm washing my hands and wearing my gown again and everything else. You know, it's like you're the, the police as far as that stuff goes. But at the end of the day, it's all about patient safety as well as uh, healthcare worker safety, right? I mean, and so that's what we want to try to provide to people.
2: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. I
2: always say we're not the police out there. Your managers, the police, they're the ones that are going to come down with the citation. We're more the detectives. We're trying to um, just look for opportunity, partner with your, you know, leadership and make change, but it's, it is patient safety. And, and it really, it comes down to equipment we use, how we manage the equipment. Um, My favorite thing is clean and dirty just recognizing where we consider clean, where we consider dirty, and we never cross the two. And if you can get it just to the very basics that people understand, like once I take something in a patient room, we consider it dirty, right? In order for it to come out, we clean and disinfect at point of care, and then we can transport it clean and store it clean in an in a environment to support that. So um, whether it's hand hygiene, you know, the washing or gelling, going in and out of a room when you're in the room. I love uh, low-level disinfectants. Uh, You know, the the one thing that we did in the, I guess, the last few years since I've been here is we put them at point of care. So just if you have the tools to support the staff where they need them, they'll do the right things. You just have to support them. I know coming here, um, asking where your germicidal wipes, well, they're One down the hall, one in the middle, and one at the far end. Well, it's really hard to do what I need to do if I don't have it as I'm exiting the room. So that's one of the things we did. We put brackets outside every patient room, put a germicidal tub, uh, tubs with wipes. And um, interesting, we're, we're doing some ATP testing of mobile equipment, and it is stellar. I'm so surprised. I, I expected failures and they're not, I'm like, they're using them. It just, it just makes my day. And so I know that equipment clean coming out is going into another patient's room clean, which is again, if you support them and support their work, people do the right thing and want to do the right thing. So it is about patient safety and protecting them.
1: Absolutely.
0: And hand hygiene is super important, right? Rick.
1: That's our motto is everything's hand <laughs> hygiene here. We, we, we love hand hygiene. We actually have come up with a way to, uh, if you're, if you're rounding or getting asked a question that you can always just say, I need to go do hand hygiene while you give yourself like 20 seconds to 30 seconds to think of your thoughts to there answer. You go. So it's, it's a good delay tactic <laughs> as well as being completely safe. Yeah. It's like, oops, I
2: didn't get enough. Let me go back. <laughs> <Okay>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Or if you wash them, then you got to go to a sink and just hang there longer. So,
1: (laughs) yeah, gels are mobile. There you go. There you go. (laughs) So you were, um, like me, worked in a different setting, a different world prior to coming to academic medicine. And so Mm -hmm. I think for somebody in your role, not that you couldn't do tremendous things in a different world, in a non-academic setting, because I think you can make a huge difference in that setting, but coming here you had the opportunity to work with people who are doing research and doing trials and, and trying to, um, you know, provide the evidence that can move us forward in infection prevention. So how exciting has that been for you to be involved in that?
2: That has been great. Um, I can, um, couple things. It it has given me the opportunity to be part of that. Um, So I can think of like our central line work and building an algorithm, you know, for, um, really to help people understand, like when a, when a peripheral line is important, when it's okay, you know, indication for a central line, really developing central lines and then an algorithm and when you might put a midline in and developing an algorithm and then publishing that. And then how does that relate to, to practice? So, um, and then, um, having been part of a couple um, studies and um, publishing has really allowed me to become a fellow within my professional organization. That's, that's one of the criteria to be a fellow in APIC, for example, uh, among other things, but publishing is one. And that was the stumbling block for me in a non-academic center. It really took my own initiative, my own interest in publishing, Um, but I hadn't pursued it prior to coming here. And so really being in this kind of an environment that supports that um, inquiry and um, exploring um, new horizons has been great. The other thing is uh, we on a monthly basis have journal club. So I think it's important for infection preventionists to stay, how do you stay on the leading edge of things, right? And what a great way to do it. Now, Our team gets to present one uh, study a month. We kind of rotate that and antibiotic stewardship will um, fellows do and then infection preventionists get to take a study and um, it's can be intimidating if it's not something you're comfortable with. There's a learning curve, but there's so much support with uh, colleagues that um, I think it, it, um, pushes you a little bit just to stay current and on top of things and to, I guess, broaden your, um, your thoughts and, um, opportunities, you know, is this something that might work for us, you know, as you're reading studies or poking holes through things and why it didn't work or, um, just really getting into the literature and, and, and reading and understanding studies, I think has been wonderful. That is something that um, has been different about coming here at an academic center.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, one of
1: my mentors told me in training that the, he was, uh, as his career moved on, he found that kind of reinventing himself or finding something new to do about every decade kept him reinvigorated and, and continuing to go. And so I think learning and finding new things is is exciting. I mean, it, it, it certainly you know the move over here has certainly offered opportunities for me that I didn't think I was ever going to have like you know doing this podcast with Sarah and talking yeah. to Terry Michaels today so <laughs> it's um you know things that you wouldn't do in practice because you simply don't have the time or the opportunity so I think it's it's great
2: yes absolutely
0: yeah it's super awesome it's this is my first experience in academic medicine as well and so I really appreciate all of the opportunity that there is and like you said, Terry, just the collaboration with colleagues is amazing. Yeah. So, and the learnings. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Yes.
2: Well, um, and, you know, I was talking about MDROs earlier and just the whole resistance mechanism, you know, um, something we get into as an IP, but not to the depth that Dr. Starlin and his colleagues would. So having um, just resources to talk about how how bugs differ, you know, their resistance mechanisms differ and understanding that and the whole antibiotic stewardship and the relationship, um, really helps develop, um, an infection preventionist. And one of the things that we all strive for is certification, right? It's, uh, that important, um, I guess, line in the sand that, you know, you've made it when you're certified. Um, it just really, uh, identifies you as just having that broad knowledge base. And so that really helps too, like our novice IPs coming to the department, um, just having those resources is great.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think the perfect interplay of all those things that you're talking about is something like C-diff, right? Because it's so, crosses so many different areas because you've got infection prevention who has to do the, you know, the environmental stuff and the protection stuff. You've got antimicrobial stewardship, who's trying to limit exposures to antibiotics and everything else and prevent the resistance. And you have ID who has to treat infections, but try to, to do it. So I, th- I think it kind of crosses all of that stuff. All the MDROs kind of do to some extent, but it seems like that one is like head on you have to really know the game and what each part of that whole team can do and bring in order to make it a, a successful C Diff program.
2: Absolutely, we did a. Um, so speaking of academic centers, we had the option or opportunity to do a project a couple years ago. Uh, it was an interdisciplinary project, so we had our housekeeping techs, we had environmental services, we had our ID colleagues, antibiotic stewardship. Um, infection preventionists, bedside nurses, uh, care techs. I mean, it really involves everyone to your point and um, really identifying what are the gaps, what are we seeing, um, what can we do to mitigate? And one of the things that came out of that project was the blue box. So if you're rounding on our acute patient uh, floors, anytime someone with C. diff or contact isolation uh requires isolation we put three feet within the room we use tape and we put a blue box in that and that was because we uh there's some study although it was red tape in the literature (laughs) that another organization used um learnings from that made a difference in their hospital number one it it was a visual cue that okay this is an isolation room because sometimes people enter the room and might miss that isolation sign it um so it's, it's a visual as you're walking in, whoops, I need PPE if I go past this blue line. It also allows providers and healthcare workers to step into the room and uh, interact with the patient without requiring the PPE. So it gives you a little flexibility there. So that was a very cool project um, that we put in place uh, related to C. diff, but it was um, just, I guess a multidisciplinary group our EVS folks, you, I can't tell you how many kinds of tape we went through <laughs> because every time we tried a different kind of tape, it would pull the finish off. It's like, oh, no, 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 can't do, right? Oh my gosh. So we took so many different kinds. That's how we ended up with blue tape. <laughs>
1: the best laid plans, right? <laughs> yes,
2: yes. It's like, uh, so we practice and practice and found the right tape. So anyway, that was That's a real fun funny. project.
0: That's super cool. Yeah. So you mentioned APIC earlier. Mm -hmm. And um, for our listeners out there, APIC is the Association for Professionals in Infection Control and Epidemiology. And um, that is the IP's professional organization. Um, Can you talk a little bit about your membership and um, kind of what support and networking opportunities you've had through that?
2: Oh, my. It's been immense. So, uh, Couple things, well, several things. So I became a member long time ago, and I've been a member for a long time. Um the cool thing about APIC is, I guess from a Nebraska perspective in Greater Omaha, from my local chapter, you interact with colleagues around the state. And there are people that are more seasoned than you, right? And people uh novice. And so there's there are colleagues that you can reach out to. There are listservs. um, we used to meet in person and kind of uh, brainstorm challenges. Like when we meet in person once a month, we'd come with, hey, I'm having this, this problem. What do you guys think? And, and really um, brainstorming with colleagues. Some of the acute care hospitals, for example, it's one IP. And so they it gives folks an opportunity to learn from each other, bounce ideas off each other. What worked at my hospital may work for you. Um, so it's allowed that. Um, it's an organization that, um, is also national. Um, so there's opportunity to go to, uh, national conferences, online learning, um, so that you can really grow your, you know, your, your knowledge. Um, myself, um, I was involved in kind of the leadership of APIC, both locally. I haven't taken that leap nationally, um, <laughs> just enough work to do here, but uh, locally um, had a leadership role in it. And that's very satisfying to, to really um, help, I guess, direct the growth and uh, where the APIC goes locally and to support IPs. Um, it's given me a chance to present. So you can start small as a one hour learning at an APIC meeting to um, regional conferences, um, Dr. Rupp and I had the opportunity to speak at National APIC, um, about Buffett Hospital or Cancer Hospital when, when we were commissioning that and all of the work that we did to ensure a safe environment, uh, from an air cleanliness perspective, knowing we had an at-risk population. So, you know, from national to local, it's a great organization, just the You know, what we have here at Nebraska Medicine and UNMC is we've got so many IPs and and the ICAP team and ID providers. Uh, We've got great resources here, but not everyone has the resources we have. And so it allows us to share things with others, too, uh, and to be their resource,
1: And talking on that, you know, you took a nursing route into infection prevention, but you don't have to do that, correct? I mean, you can have other experiences and still get into infection prevention.
2: Yes. So some of my colleagues around the state, well, I'll just talk about our program specifically. Um, Jen is one of our IPs here and she's a um, lab tech or medical uh, laboratory scientist. That's her background. And so um, coming from a Micro uh, microbiology perspective, but um, wanting to do something outside of the lab, it's a great opportunity for someone with that background. Um, some of my colleagues have a public health uh, background, uh, more epidemiology. Um, that takes a bit of learning when you get into an acute care because there's a bit of learning if that's not within your school background or your exposure. Um, but I also have colleagues who were none of those who came from, uh, it was more of an industrial. I can't remember gentleman. I'm thinking of, uh, his background, but I asked him specifically, I said, so if you had no medical background, you, you went to look at a central line, where do you begin? I mean, how do you learn that knowledge? And he said, it was kind of to his benefit because he could go and he could, at the bedside and said, tell me about this line. You know, why, and why would you choose this over another? And what do you do to care for the line? And so the more he asked, the more he inquired, he would go back and read resources and policies and say, yep, this is good. Or like, if it didn't quite fit, go back and ask more questions. And um, it, it was, so someone without that, I guess acute care background or medical background really can, do well in this, given the right personal characteristics and somewhat of a background, you know, infectious disease or epidemiology or microorganisms or really have, I think, the best fit for this role. And uh, an interest in, you always have to be learning. It's a nonstop learning when you're in this field. There's so, so much to always gain, you know, there's always something new out there, so
1: agreed agreed great uh, discussion Jen's always helpful when uh, we want to like do hand cultures and have her go down and look and see what 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 did people have on their hands after they supposedly did hand hygiene or or whatever that is a fun thing we, like <laughs> what's the culture right yeah, yep yep yep, yep. <laughs> done that in my
2: past two we've get someone who uh, just washed their hands cultured them, big big auger plate and then someone who it's been uh, maybe 30 minutes out, just compare. Um, it's a great teaching tool to take those uh, culture plates and a stethoscope, I might add to.
1: Oh, yeah. A about, and a cell phone, right? <laughs> yeah, cell phone. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to put my cell phone on. I wish. Uh, and you think how many times you touch it. <laughs> yes. Yes.
0: Yeah, Hence I, uh, ATP too. I used to use Glow Germ when I taught. Uh, infection control with my students and that was always really fun and eye-opening for them to be able to see exactly what you touch so get transmitted yeah yeah i would uh i would have everyone put the glow germ lotion on their hands and then lecture for an hour and then we would go back and look at their phone and their notebooks and their pens and the tables and their face just all over yep
2: <laughs> yep we got to do that with um medical students, it'd be the third year medical students. They don't ask us to do that anymore, though. I don't know what happened. <laughs> <laughs> we would take the germin and pretend bugs and uh, it was fun. <laughs> yeah, it's nothing like a demonstration, right? To go, okay.
1: Certainly puts it in your head forever, I think, if you can actually visualize it.
2: Yeah, I'm a visual learner.
1: Yeah, I yep. think a lot of people are. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. You've mentioned ATP a couple of times. And so you're talking about doing some environmental ATP testing. So I'm just curious kind of what your thoughts are on using that as a tool to look at the effectiveness of environmental cleaning or how contaminated places are and how you might use that in a infection prevention kind of role in a facility.
2: Sure. Well, we have a pretty robust program with environmental services already, and they do a... Uh, So following patient discharge, they'll go in and swab some areas of room. I call it swabbing. It's kind of like a a wet gel on a sponge, if you will, that they can place on certain surfaces. And then after the EVS tech cleans, they'll go back in with a black light and look to see if they've hit or miss. You know, it takes some friction, not just wiping, but a little bit of friction. And um, so that's the EVS part of it. Um, but what we miss, I mean, there are surfaces outside patient rooms. So for me in particular, I think about mobile equipment. So we talked about stethoscopes, think about handheld ultrasound, think about um, glucometers that come and go or bladder scanners. So I, I like the mobile equipment piece. And that's kind of where we're going to start using the program here at Nebraska Medicine. Um, we got the um, device in. First part of March is when we've we've actually started doing the swag. It takes a little bit of time to build your program and determine how much you're going to do and where you're going to do it and what you you know. So we actually started the program early March and are, are focusing on glucometers today, but we've got a long exhaustive list of what we could do. So that's sort of our place to start. And essentially what should happen is when a nurse takes a nurse and or uh, anyone on the care team takes a glucometer or any device out of the room, you clean it at point of care and you store it clean. And so what we'll do is we'll go to the clean storage place and swab it. It looks like a Q-tip. It has um, adenosine triphosphate. It takes me back to Krebs cycle, right? <laughs> right. So it, uh, it's like they, they equate it to the glow in a um, firefly, so essentially taking the technology on a swab and you swab something and then you put it in this machine and it uh, measures the RLUs, the relative light units, and based upon how, how it glows, uh, what your number is, whether it's clean or dirty. And so it's just a visual, I think, for not only a visual, but a metric. It's a process metric so that um, you can share with colleagues at the bedside how they're doing. Um, so that's how we're using ATP. Um, I think there's lots of things that we can do with it. That's how we're starting. So really it's the things outside of EVS that they're already managing That's how we're going to use the program.
0: So that is super cool. There's all kinds of new technology out there that um, everyone's been using. I am curious um, how the pandemic affected what you do in the hospital.
2: Where do we begin? Um, you know, one of the cool things that I got to do and early in the pandemic, and, and it's only because I am here is, um, when this first came out, I remember first talking about COVID back then and it was just like this bug in China. It's like, hmm, yeah, well then pretty soon it's growing, growing. And then we had, um, citizens, U S citizens in China that we were, um, re- um, really bringing back home. And one of the sites that, um, folks were repatriated was, uh, Camp Ashland, if you recall. Mm-hmm. And, um, so we provided, well, we had this big command center with the CDC and Asper and a lot, of, you know, the state, uh, local health departments and Nebraska Medicine, UNMC were involved in this this process of uh, bringing folks back. And so our EVS and food service supplied services for Camp Ashland. And one of the things I got to do was to actually work with our EVS techs at Camp Ashland. When our our first uh, potential rule-out cases came to the U.S., they were in rule-out mode at that point, but really partnering with EVS and teaching them how to use PPE, the donning and doffing, because at that point, you know, we're using contact and well, it was really contact and airborne um, without the negative air, but really they were afraid, you know, these are people that aren't used to dealing with an unknown organism that people are dying from. And so being able to go in and work with them, I didn't necessarily clean the rooms, but I was in the hall bagging trash, bagging linen, and uh, working in PPE with them. Number one, it it showed that it was safe, that we are protected with the PPE and, and allowed some training. And just to be part of that experience was so cool. Um, and then, as you know, it, it grew and grew and pretty soon, um, we had some of our first cases here or what were perceived as first cases. Some of these were rule outs. And I can tell you, we had infection preventionists running to, uh, the ED at Bellevue. I say running because we got a call and they were concerned they had their first case and they wanted some training. So it'd be, you know, seven o'clock on a Friday night, we were, it was called to action. So we would be heading to Bellevue talking about how do you transfer safely have PPE in and out. So there was a ton of our time related to just coaching and putting uh, materials together and um, just training, PPE training, pepper training. Peppers were in use, but just not widely used. And so really people just making sure they had a comfort level, getting in and out of a pepper uh, without contaminating themselves. And then um, a role, a new role came out of this. We call them PPE extenders. So that was a brand new role, knowing that um, it, it's it can be challenging getting out of a PAPR and PPE and not right contaminate yourself. So then we developed this role called the PPE extender, which um, originally was some of our, you know, as you, we had to close down some of our ambulatory settings, people that got um, from those settings that could come and help us in that way. So just really getting some super users and then processes. So one of the first things we did here at Nebraska Medicine and UNMC was to develop um, UV disinfection, right, of our N95s because we had so little supply. That was such a cool thing. Being able to work with, um, boy, some very bright people, Uh, John Lowe, among others, just really doing the testing and validating, and then uh, getting the environment, figuring out where are we gonna do this, uh, setting up the room, painting the room with UV reflective paint, getting the setup, doing the testing there, and then who's gonna run this? Well, we were uh, our uh, ORs, right? As we were really just shutting down our ORs. moving those team members to run the um, decontam area. And just, um, it was so cool. It was just like a a smooth operation, just the whole dirty, clean flow, um, brown bag, white bag procedure. We had procedures on everything. And once we validated that, I know that was one of the studies that the CDC used as part of their um, recommendation to UV disinfect respirators Um, then we had hospitals come to visit us so um, rounding with those others from local hospitals so that was cool just um, teaching and sharing with others what we're doing here
1: yeah I thought that was really cool some of the things that were done and developed you know we had the opportunity to care for some of the first Americans that had this illness and so we're able to kind of learn a lot early on we had you know hopefully more successes and failures but we certainly had the opportunity to try lots of things and we had again patient safety and healthcare worker safety at our foremost thoughts when we were trying to develop a lot of those things and it's pretty exciting to see other places adopt that stuff don't you think absolutely
0: seems like the, other, the Med Center and um, UNMC were pretty early adopters in everything, um, able to kind of go with their own data and make some decisions based on that and um, kind of be uh, role models for other, other systems in the state. So,
2: Well, we also had learnings from our colleagues on the coast as they were experiencing their surges and the challenges they faced Then we adopted some of our, or adapted some of our units uh, for COVID care. So our COVID unit today used to be a pediatric unit. Prior to that, it was a HEMOC unit. So it had uh, gasketed rooms, everything was uh, controlled airflow. And so with our working with our engineers, we were able to relocate our pediatric population to other areas of the hospital. And convert that unit to a COVID unit, so every patient room had um, met the AII requirements or airborne requirements, and uh, had monitoring outside. And that was a very cool, cool thing. Um, we grew beyond that, and then we had to work with our facility engineers again with how do we, how do we look at airflow in other units, and what can we do to. Um, really mitigate risk of airborne diseases, you know, when it's aerosolized. So that was, um, that was really fun. We did some smoke tests, which this is the first time I've ever done a smoke test with uh, (laughs) airborne isolation. I'm like, okay, just like the book says it works.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That's pretty cool. Uh,
2: Yeah. But these were like rooms that were non-negative air, you know, just normal rooms. And how do you how do you manage the airflow on a unit so it's going from the core into the room and out rather than from the rooms out to the core and putting healthcare workers at risk and other patients. So it was interesting. It was challenging um, again. And that's where you, we worked with our facility folks, our engineer consultants, our, uh, you know, ID, medical directors, infection control, medical directors. Um, oh boy turning them several units into COVID units and then decommissioning them as COVID, right? And then here we go again, another surge, add them back. So we did some pretty creative things here to, all in the name of patient safety and employee safety, really, um, just the best that we could do to keep keep everyone safe. Yeah, it's quite the experience.
0: Boy, it takes a village, doesn't it?
2: It does. It does policies and getting things committed to paper. And then, as you know, most of our policies are outward facing. So um, people would come to us, what are you doing? How are you doing this? And so I would send them the link, you know, not only would you talk them through it, but like, here's our material to help you. So adapt, you know, take what we have and adapt it to your facility to make it work. Um, It's just, uh, it was a great resource for a lot of different people.
1: Agreed. You guys lost your model for all of your, your things that you did when Lauren moved to a different job, though.
2: I know. <laughs> I know. Who's,
1: who, who's going to take that role? It's like the star, right? So, Meryl Streep of the, uh, infection prevention at Nebraska Medicine.
2: <laughs> so, you know, we were making a video for Knee Tech that day. That's where that picture comes from. Oh, so, yeah. we, the hand washing and the donning and doffing, and that is. That's in the early days of COVID. We were up in the biocontainment unit, like making this a uh, homemade movie, right? Yeah. And then I'm driving down the interstate and here's a snapshot on some billboard of Laura. And I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> can't imagine what she must've thought. Yeah, she probably didn't <laughs>
1: expect that either, I'm
2: no. sure. <laughs> you know, you sign a release that says, yep, you can use my photo. Right. Yeah. <laughs> She's on a billboard. There should
0: be a little, a little box that you check do not make me 60 feet tall. Right.
2: right. Yeah. Well, the same thing happened not too long ago with Corinne in our department, too. She she said one day she got up. She's on call. She had a call at four in the morning. She turned on her computer and opened it up. And what's on her Internet page was her picture front and center in a KN95. She was like, oh, oh, it's like, They're always coming to us and saying, hey, can you get a picture of this? Sure. And I pull someone out of their office, put this on. And
0: pretty soon, (laughs) yeah. Well, at least they're they're getting pictures of the PPE born the right way, right? There's so many stock photos that I see of like, someone has their mask down under their chin or they're not wearing their gloves right or whatever. Right.
2: It is all I can do when I'm walking out in the public is to fix someone's PPE, I just finally, after a while, I just have to shut her down, right? Just not go there.
1: <laughs>
2: or people that have it on backwards, you know, they'll have the color side in, the fluid resistant part. I'm like, uh oh. so
1: What can you do sometimes, right? Just what we do. We teach and train and yep. try to make it better. Yep. Um So coming up, you know, lots of change, obviously, in your career in infection prevention and and been a big driver and all that. What, uh, where do you think things are going? What challenges do we have ahead? What's the future of infection prevention look like? And how do we get young people interested in this field? Obviously, you have a bunch of passion for it. Mm -hmm. Um, There's so many opportunities for young people in healthcare now, probably different from uh, when, you know, we started. 30, 40 years ago, whenever it was. Um, So how can we keep people going in this direction?
2: You know, we've had an open position for a while and it's hard to recruit. And uh, I think, so in talking to the candidates, the couple new candidates we've had, we've had to like reach out people that are um, in a quality council, bedside nurse, maybe it's on quality council. So they're, they're in some form of Um, taken on extra work and a role and and a commitment to make things better. We've reached out to them and said, hey, just come come spend a day in our life and just see what this is about. And what we've heard back from, I'll say the last three candidates is that, number one, I didn't think I was qualified for this. Number two, you do so much more than what I thought you really do, you know, uh, what they perceived of us and what our role really is. It is so, we are in so many different things. Mm -hmm. You can be in the OR, you can be in the environment of care. You can, uh, there's just so many ways that you can take this and really run with it. And so when you talk about the future, um, for me, I think it's the technology side. Mm -hmm. I think of how do we make our surveillance easier, quicker, So it takes less oversight, maybe by an IB. I say less, it still requires us to, to review cases and events, but um, I think our surveillance systems are doing better, but I think there's still opportunity for improvement. I think about um, cleaning and disinfection. I know there's a lot out there now, but I just, um, I just think there's opportunities with um, automation. Um, You know, we're, we're looking at the next building right here on campus in the next several years, building this really intuitive, uh, future-oriented hospital. Uh, what's possible, you know? Mm-hmm. For me, I think about that blue, blue tape. I want something, an LED uh, line in the floor integrated that I can just flip a switch and it's on. <laughs> That's where my mind goes. How do you make the, it's all about workflow too. So how do you build the structure to support the workflow you want? So people are going to do the right things. That is a big part of, I think our scope and role is looking at building to guidelines, but how do you structure the environment to support people doing the right things? And some of that automation, um, I'm not sure I'm the one to, to lead this forward. I think I've gotten us this far. Probably ready to hand that baton at some point here in the future. But um, it'll be interesting. Just very interesting. And the new bugs, right? I just, yeah. just think about what's come about in our career and what's to come.
1: Yeah, I think how we adopt the technology that is there into infection prevention, infectious disease in general and and things like that is fascinating and we're using a lot more you know, molecular testing, for example, and uh, can we get results faster? Can we somehow, because right now, I mean, it relies on things going to the lab, maybe that organism growing, and then somehow there's got to be an alert that somehow somebody in infection prevention sees or somebody uh, that's, you know, taking care of the patient notices that, hey, this bug looks like it's resistant to a lot of stuff. I better put them in isolation. Whereas maybe there'll come a day where we'll get that specimen, they'll run a genetic panel on it, they'll see that, oh yeah, this looks like it's an MDRO based on its genetic sampling that they can get back in an hour, and then maybe we can prevent some transmission and outbreak in a unit, you know, I don't know. But it's certainly got excitement uh, potential, I think, uh, for game-changing things in the hospital.
2: I just love the whole genome thing. And yep. if you can, you know, just uh, if you're picking, if, if you can get it to the, the speed at which you're describing and then the interrelatedness between bugs and where are we seeing this, right? To me, that's the, and then you can, there's a direct link, right? You go, they're related. So how do you put the pieces together of that puzzle so that you solve where's this starting and how's it get there?
0: We need all of those bright minds to come join IP yes. and and bring your ideas.
1: Yep, I mean, I think the future. There's so much in the future. We've learned so much in the last, like you said, that, you know, the 80s and 90s were way different than where we're at now. I remember placing central lines just in a room, you know, throwing, taking off my lab coat and throwing my shoulder, my towel, my tie over my shoulder, <laughs> and just putting on some gloves and putting in a central line. Right? I mean, and that was in the mid nineties. Right. <clears throat> no way that would happen now. We, no, we know sir. that that's not appropriate. Right.
2: Right. Right. Yeah.
0: So gross. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell I know, you what, we've learned think, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I always think about, uh, I hear stories from older dentists on when they used to practice without gloves. I'm like, I can't even fathom Doing what you do without wearing gloves. Sarah, that was my old ICU days before, uh,
2: you know, HIV. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It was like a, a badge of courage, you know, if you were soiled for the day. I don't know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I
2: worked hard today.
0: <laughs> I, have, I have this to prove it.
2: <laughs> yeah. Not the same today. Now it's like, you know, get your barrier on, then you head in.
1: At least we have less um, herpes infections on our hands now.
2: Hopefully we have a lot fewer infections <laughs> just for healthcare workers. Now, if we could just get the eyewear nailed down, that is the, probably our biggest challenge is, uh, well, we're in mass, so it's hard to wear eyewear when you're fogging up your glasses. But yeah, um, eye protection, boy, that's probably the hardest form of PPE to get people to, to wear uniformly every time they go in a room.
0: Yeah. That's so foreign to me because in dentistry, we're always in eyewear, always.
2: So how'd you get there, Sarah? How'd you get to that point?
0: <laughs> High-speed handpieces rotate at 400,000 RPMs. So. <laughs> <laughs> so bring them to the, the bedside. <laughs> we have to have impact-resistant eyewear. <laughs>
2: yeah,
1: so, you guys expect yeah. splashes and high yeah. speed stuff that we don't always go into the room expecting. I think the biggest change for us has been making stuff available. I think if you make it available and convenient, then people are more likely to use it. Because if, if, if the stuff's not at the bedside or outside the room, people are just going to walk in because they're going to be like, I have to get through my day and get this done. Yeah. Um, but I think as you noted earlier with the the low level disinfectants being outside the rooms, it, it, the more that we can have readily available. And problem with eyewear is it has to be actually physically with the person or on the person in order for them to wear their particular eyewear. And I suspect when you're in a dentist's office or dental facility, it's probably nothing is that far away from you. Whereas us rounding, especially as physician providers, we're in four different towers on any given day. So it's a, it's a lot more difficult to have that readily available for us. And yeah. that it fits
2: and it's comfortable.
1: There's that too.
2: It's got to be comfortable. You know, we can provide eye protection, excuse me, but if it's not, um, if it's not comfortable, I'm not going to wear it either because I'm going to get sores behind my ears or other, other problems too.
0: Yeah. We, we would just wear it all day long. It's just a part of your face. (laughs) (laughs) And I will say that the, the anti-fog wipes really help a lot. Yes. We,
2: we made those available on units too. And I hope Mm -hmm. I don't, Hopefully they continue to order them, but we did find products to help support teams. Yeah. The other thing is a motto, um, and I think this came from a traveler, uh, gloves on, glasses on, or goggles on, gloves on, goggles on. Just slogans to help people just remember, anytime you glove, you goggle too. Yeah,
0: that's great.
1: Well, it looks like we've already been talking for almost an hour Hard to believe, goes so fast. It was so, so much fun.
2: I, I can't believe it either. It's been, you guys are just enjoyable to talk to. I feel like I've uh, walked the walk with you guys, right? <laughs> these last few years, and Rick, yeah. you and I go a little further back, but
1: uh, yeah,
2: Sarah definitely. We've uh, we've survived survived yeah. these last few years of COVID outbreak. So.
1: And we'll have to have you back on again and talk about some of the specific things that you do. You know, we've we've talked um, to public health as well, just kind of what you get presented with maybe an outbreak. How do you think through it? How do you set it up? And how do you investigate it and, you know, make sure you're going down the right path and not going down some rabbit hole that's the wrong direction? I think that would be a great uh, thing to talk to you about, because I'm sure you've done more than a couple outbreak investigations in your career.
2: You know, from an IP perspective, it's always where does the bug live? And if it shows up where it shouldn't be, like normal flora, how to get there, you know? And that's always the start of everything. If it's supposed to be there like skin flora and it's in a device, well, then what tools do we have to mitigate it? But if it's a bug that shouldn't be there, how to get there? I've had some a couple very interesting um, investigations, outbreaks, in my past that um mycobacterium for example that you don't expect and uh where you see repeatedly yeah. and uh figuring it out uh,
1: well we'll get you back on and talk about those now you're talking my language with the, okay the, the mycobacterium so yes. good times <laughs> yes
0: i'm sure <laughs> i'll uh, have plenty with... of questions i've never been involved in an outbreak investigation no. before so and, well and aside from things... covid
2: yep Find things in places that you wouldn't expect or sources. Uh, I've got some interesting ones with uh, bronchoscopes. It wasn't a patient harm situation, but it was, uh, we were contaminating the specimen. And so it kept showing up in the specimen and it was, we fixed it. Once you figure it out, then you can fix the problem. So Very
0: cool.
2: I, would ha- I would happily come back and talk about these.
0: Awesome. Well, do you have any questions for us before we sign off?
2: No, I just appreciate you both. Um, I just working with you as colleagues in the field, it's just genuinely warms my heart that um, you're trying to make a little fun out of this and learn about people and learn about roles and to share with others. I think, as you pointed out, Rick, just recruitment, you know, how do we get people involved in the field and It can be fun. It can be exciting. And um, you can make a difference. That's at the end of the day, if you can make a difference and keep someone safe and make something safer, it feels good,
0: which is um, a
2: very positive thing.
0: So
1: well said. Well said. Thank you for joining us.
0: Yes. Thank you so much for your time today, Terry. All righty. Bye, guys. And for all of our listeners out there, don't forget to join us in the conversation on Twitter at Dirty Underscore Drinks, and we will catch you on the next episode.
1: Bye, everyone. Thanks.
0: Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at Dirty Underscore Drinks on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, reach out to us through Twitter Twitter to become a guest on future episodes. We would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.